You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, uh, the EV-focused, the driven and also one step off the grid. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. I'm well, trust the audience as well. Uh, I doubt it's the same audience, uh, Giles, as Q&A, uh, and we probably shouldn't reprise that, but we haven't we got a great guest this week? <laughs> we do, though. We might leave that one from Q&A, um, just to go through to the keeper, as it were. Um, look, it's been a really interesting week. Um, first heat wave of the summer, and it's not even yet summer in Australia. The El Nino Declaration for Australia, long awaited, long anticipated, but now declared. Uh, calls from international groups and now Australian groups for the net zero 2050 target to be fast-tracked to not just 2045 or 2040, but to 2035. We heard earlier this week from the Climate Council saying very much that. And on Thursday, uh, when we're recording this podcast, the um, Australian Academy of Technology, Science and Engineering also put out its call for a 2035 net zero uh, target. And it's my great pleasure to welcome ATSI President Dr. Catherine Woodthorpe. Um, Catherine, thanks for joining the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So, um, ATSI um, has put out a call for 2035 net zero target. Um, Why and why now? So... 2050, it's a long way off. It doesn't focus people's mind on the problem at hand. And if we relied on 2050 as being the time by which we get to net zero, we will not make the window, um, certainly to keep to 1.5 degrees, but probably even to keep to 2 degrees. So it's absolutely imperative that we get moving faster and we get moving now. So it's, it's very much been the case that um, the net zero 2050 target has almost been seized on as an excuse by some people to not do very much over the next five to ten years. It's, well, we've got 2050 to do this, but um, clearly, even if we're actually trying to get the 2050 target, we need to be moving very quickly now to get those sort of science-based targets under control. And when you think it's a, that's a generation away, um, and... We're the ones who, in the last couple of generations, have created the bulk of this problem um, to wish it upon the next generation to have to manage the problem and solve it um, strikes me as being markedly unfair. But importantly, it also means that the, the longer we take, the smaller the window gets. And in fact, the faster you have to move it. It's a, a law of diminishing returns. And so the sooner you move, the longer you actually have to do it. Um, so it, it becomes counterproductive to have a, a far out end date. We really need to get moving soon. Is, is there any particular sort of climate sort of um, sort of developments or I mean is it the sort of the record temperatures that sort of um, behind the timing of this call or are you kind of just sort of sick of seeing the sort of the the delay and the lack of action uh, amongst policymakers and um, and what have you? There has been and there is constantly updates on the science of the climate. Those updates continually 
reinforce the difficulties we are in as a planet and reinforce the need for action sooner rather than later. And as I said, the windows are ever closing upon us. And then when you compound that with the hottest day that the planet has ever seen since recordings started, um, the minimum amount of sea ice around Antarctica that has ever been recorded, and those events sharpen your mind very much about what's in store for us. Yeah. Uh, one more question before handing over to David and give him his turn. Even the 2050 target meant basically decarbonising the grid by 2035 because that was necessary so you could then decarbonise other sectors, transport, buildings, industry, etc. And I think it was pretty much beholden on sort of advanced economies like Australia and others to do that by between 2035, was well, hopefully it's 2035, but 2040 at the latest. What would a 2035 net zero target require of the grid to allow the rest of the economy to follow in behind? Well, it clearly requires accelerating um, the amount of renewables we have in the grid, the amount of firming that we have in the grid, whether that's through predominantly through batteries, but things like solar concentrating thermal also provide firming. Um, it needs... and. and Absolutely, the likes of AEMO and others are completely cognizant of this and working hard and fast to, to get there as well. But there are new technologies coming on board, or more importantly, old technologies are getting improved. So solar PV is continuing to improve in its efficiency. Um, solar concentrating thermal becomes um, is coming into a price range that's now um, feasible to Im Im put that into the grid. Um, so we have the technology, it's just the will to implement and it take, will take a lot of work. We're not pretending it's easy, but it needs to be done. So Catherine, could you just tell me a little bit about the uh, ATSI, if that's how you say it, uh, as an acronym organisation? Because I don't think it's one that uh, all of our listeners will be very familiar with. Sure. So... The, uh, so ATSI is the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering. There are so-called learned academies in various areas such as science, social sciences and so on. ATSI's unique in that we spread across not just academia but deeply into industry and uh, government scientists as well. So we have some 900 fellows uh, or just shy of 900 fellows all of whom are leaders in their fields of science, applied science, technology and engineering. So we have a an incredibly broad range and deep range, um, deep knowledge of uh, the leaders of Australian science, technology and engineering who are bringing their, their minds to this problem. Um, they're leading in terms of making this call, but also working on a number of different um, papers and statements and, and reviews that actually go into more depth in different sectors as to how we can achieve some of these um, some of these outcomes that we need to including for example the energy transition and I think like other organizations uh, ATSI has international links does it yes for sure so uh, we're part of something called the Council of Academies of Engineering and Technological Sciences um, the, in fact we have our annual meeting of those global um, partners in l next month in Eastern Europe and in two years time it will actually be held in Australia. Uh, the one in Eastern Europe this year is focusing on the energy transition and particularly homing in on 
uh, electric vehicles. So I'm going to find that absolutely fascinating to attend. Yes, uh, well, you're speaking to the uh, converted and co- using converters in Giles and I, but uh, um, and no doubt many other listeners. Uh, but could you tell me just generally, I mean, a policy statement from the board or secretariat of an organisation is one thing and the sort of feeling of the members is can sometimes be a little different and also the international. Could you just tell me from your experience uh, from the people at ATSI that you talk to how how... How, how strongly they feel about this position statement generally? So a couple of things. One is that ATSI is an academy of fellows. We do everything from, by and for the fellows. Um, so we also regularly poll our fellows to see what issues are taxing them the most. And climate change is one that they've all expressed, um, or the, the vast majority expressed as being their number one concern and the number one area that they wanted ATSI to do more. So overall, we have a, a strong push from ATSI fellows that we should be doing uh, s- stuff in climate as a priority. Then some fellows came to us and said, look, we have a position statement from a couple of years ago and we want to strengthen it and call for um, a sharper focus. And so then there's a a process that we follow whereby fellows from different what we call forums, so there's an energy forum, an agriculture forum and so on. So different sectoral groups work together to produce the first draft of the statement it was shared with all of those different forums. It was then shared with um, the f- forums plus the uh, state division chairs. They all approved it. It then came back to the board. It then went out to the fellows. So all fellows got a copy of it a couple of weeks ago. And a couple of them came back with some really valuable tweaks at the last minute. So so it, it really has been through the ringer in terms of fellows having an opportunity to have their say and has received overwhelming support from them. That's uh, interesting to hear uh, what I expected, but still interesting to me. And you also mentioned that ATSI has, and I think your prior background is uh, quite a lot of uh, what we call NEDs, non-executive directorships, and uh, ATSI has links into industry. Um, I note that one of your uh, founding presidents or earlier presidents, Avi Parbo, was the chief executive of Western Mining, I think. Um, Indeed, Are you able to talk a little bit in the discussions that you have in in the broader industry outside of uh, ATSI, uh, how, how, what's the discussion in boardrooms? And I, I guess a little bit about what role, you know, your average uh, <coughs> junior burger uh, NED can, can play because very often these big organisations are kind of dominated by the, by the chairman and the, uh, 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 and, the, and, and the executive ranks. So I'm kind of interested in how important non-executive directors are in your experience and, and, and also as well as what the actual feeling is in those discussions that you have. So the answer is very and very. Um, so as an example, the um, Australian Institute of Company Directors, which I'm heavily involved with, in, ha- having been formerly the president of their New South Wales division, has um, taken up uh, this issue very strongly. There is a an international group called Climate Governance Initiative and the AICD, the Institute of Company Directors, has um, set up as a chapter of that Climate Governance Initiative. So boards are going to be required and and obviously it'll start with the bigger companies but all of these things filter down to the smaller companies over time. Boards globally 
will be mandated, some are already, to report to their um, equivalents of our ASIC, the Securities um, and Investments Commission, on their climate governance. And certainly their investors are very much asking these questions as well, from the Black Rocks of this world to the Australian big super funds. They're all asking questions of these companies about their climate governance. And so the boards of those companies are absolutely beholden, both in terms of mandatory standards and reporting, but also to their investors to be on the front foot in terms of what they're doing to understand their climate risk, to mitigate that, and to do their bit to reduce their carbon footprint. Uh, yeah, hi, um, Giles back again. Um, I'm just interested in just exploring some of the, um, the your actual policy document. It states that this goal is technically possible. Um, so I mean, I'm just interested in just exploring that because I mean, so many people would sort of say, look, we can't do it. We don't have the technologies now. Um, these things don't work. Uh, it's just too hard. I mean, you say it um, is going to be difficult. It requires an enormous amount of coordination. But just, I'm just interested in hearing more about, you know, um, how feasible and how, how possible it is. It's like so many of these things. Um, where there's a will, there's a way. It's feasible. We have the technologies. The, the technologies we need today are there. They're mature. They're implementable. It requires the will of government regulation, the will of um, industries to implement those technologies. So it's monumentally difficult. It, it, it will be very um, it won't be easy to, to put this into the grid and, and to all the other industries that need to um, amend their carbon footprints as well, but it is doable. And without a sense of a, a goal to galvanize people into thinking we re are a target to really do this, it'll be easy to just let time fritter away again. And before we know it, we're at 2035 and we've made very little progress. So that's why we're making this call. We, we need to galvanize action now or the opportunity to actually do anything um, useful will escape us. And then something else I really want to go into is it's also an opportunity. You know, every problem has a commensurate opportunity. Australia to date has been a, an energy superpower. We have, um, we, we've uh, sent our coal, our oil. Third largest exporter of thermal energy, or yeah. sometimes even the second in the world. And, and people have needed that. And, and, you know, before we understood about climate change, um, it, it was uh, powering the world. The reality is that it, it won't be soon. People will not be buying our coal. Our economy will suffer if we haven't done our bit that we're morally obliged to do, but economically done what we need to do to future-proof Australia's economy in the, uh, in the not-too-distant future, then we'll have squandered that opportunity. The likes of the UAE and Saudi Arabia get it. They are looking to not only change their own grids across to renewable, but looking at how to produce things like green hydrogen, green ammonia, green methanol, in order to be able to sell their power across the ocean to people who we and countries that we would have considered our markets to date. So we need to be on the front foot with this to both recapture those markets for what will be renewable power, but also then to bring green manufacturing back on shore, whether it's green steel or other forms of manufacturing, because we will have cheap and plentiful energy. So the investment we make today will reap huge rewards in the future. 
Yeah, I mean, you sort of, you know, I mean, just over the last 20 years, we've basically achieved very little. I think our industrial emissions have come down 2% or maybe even 1% or maybe even even steady um, unchanged over sort of nearly 20 years, which is a bit bleak. And yet the 2035 net zero call requires of us to basically eliminate those emissions in, in, in 12 years. So it's just like a... a complete change basically everything that we've done up until now has just really just been sort of fiddling around the edges i guess one of the challenges of this is to get the political policy and regulatory support of this and to what extent is this being undermined by just the um you know just the uh, the extraordinary sort of denial that goes out there just of technology, of climate science. Uh, it's just extraordinary just seeing social media just littered with just complete falsehoods, um, made up information. I don't know whether they come from bots or from 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 people who have just um, peculiar beliefs. I mean, sort of as scientists, as technology experts, as engineers, I mean, you must be aware of this. Um, I have a lot of scar tissue uh, <laughs> after 20 years of, uh, of uh, trying to change people's understanding. So I, I started this journey for me somewhat more than 20 years ago, and particularly when I became um, chair of the then Antarctic Climate and Ecosystem CRC, which was really all about climate change. And since then, I, as I say, I've grown a lot of scar tissue because there's been a lot of people just wishing to deny it because um, it's going to be painful and it's easy to go oh let's just forget it you know it's everyone else's problem we're small we're not um, it's not our responsibility it is and um, and people so that the, the kindest thing you can say is that people are frightened or lazy about making the changes necessary to date um, but then you add on top of that those who and I really don't get their motivations are actively undermining the understanding of climate science and the need to do something about it. And y you wonder how they look their grandchildren in the eye. Well, I'm not too sure they sort of seem to care about these things. I mean, I'm not even too sure that we're actually winning the battle on, on, on this ground. I don't know whether the noise that we're hearing, and we're just seeing it's become very intense over the last couple of months. We've just noticed it on the social media ch channels and comments on our website and just sort of talking from other people who are going out, sort of talking about wind and solar farms and they're hearing from farmers and they're just hearing the most bizarre explanations and assumptions about wind and solar energy. Um, or is this just the loudest shouting of a small group in denial that will fade away or uh, yes I'm just wondering I, th I think it's partly the, the way the media broadly and that you know particularly social media works these days that the the loudest and most outrageous voices win um, I don't think that that actually represents the real depth of belief and understanding in the country just because there's a lot of shouty people um, who who seem to have a lot of airtime. Uh, certainly when I talk to people from all walks of life, not just in my own social circles, which you might think are obviously a bit of an echo chamber, but, but when I go and talk to schools and when I go and talk to uh, other groups of people, there's a, there's a clear understanding of the problem, the urgency and the need. So um, you just have to sort of inure yourself to, to some, of that, um, some of that rabid noise that goes on and, and just keep fighting the good fight. I I agree with that. I think uh, statistically, surveys show that sixty to seventy percent every year. I mean, it varies. Um, support broadly uh, um, um, 
doing stuff, exactly what stuff, uh, it, it, but the general concept is, is pretty well accepted. It's like it's with farmers. You know, farmers, are, they say farmers are shouting about this. Farmers know and care and love their land. They want to do the best thing by their land and do it sustainably. Meat and Livestock Australia are aiming for carbon neutral by 2030. The farmers are not crying out to stop this. The farmers totally understand it. They're at the absolute pointy front end of the... Um, the, the consequences of climate change and they absolutely get that they both have to and can do their bit. Um, so people misrepresent the views of those kind of groups. Um, just look at, you know, the, the farmers group on climate action and then you've got emergency leaders on climate action. There, there are really important groups out there um, who are representative of the real views of those sectors. Some of the real views, I, I, I hesitate to, dis, uh, as I said, there's often a disconnect between rank and file, to use a union term, and leadership. Uh, I, I'm not disagreeing with what you say, I'm just saying that as someone who grew up in country Australia, uh, um, farmers have uh, have views, uh, and, they're, and, they're, and uh, you know, other family members in the farming family may have different views, there's a lot of views. Um, what I wanted to ask more generally is about the role of ATSI in, in, I suppose, or the role of science education. Uh, again, uh, you know, scientists, uh, there's a consensus, I think, or a paradigm on, on an issue that science develops. But how do you generally, um, um, uh, um, you know, avoid this problem of it's an expert speaking, experts don't always understand the problems that I face uh, or, or generally, or how do you, you know, I, I often, I was just talking to a cardiologist this morning who was saying that for smoking, uh, they, they, they got over it by just putting in place a rule. That's what worked, not education. Um, uh, what is the role of science education, I think is my question. Well, certainly science education, the more science literate the public are, the more they'll actually be able to understand. But what's really important with someone like ATSI or an, a group like ATSI is because we also work in industry and in government, um, our fellows are embedded in the places where changes need to be made. They're not just academics, um, not to disparage academics, but you know where you, where you say people maybe look to academics or, or so-called experts other than academics um, and, and find it hard to relate to them. Um, we're talking about people who are embedded in the areas that actually need to make the changes. Yes, and uh, I just wonder, does ATSI include like social sciences or is it mostly hard sciences? Because increasingly over the past couple of years, I've become more and more convinced that this whole thing is not a technology problem. Uh, it's not an economics problem. It's a, it's a soft social people uh, type thing. So ATSI doesn't, there is in fact an entire... Um, Academy of Social Sciences with whom we work closely. Um, we, we have a kind of peak body of, of uh, academies, um, the Australian Council on Learned, of Learned Academies, and we work closely on a lot of these issues together. So we'll often be producing joint papers. Um, in the case of this particular paper, we did it solo, but the Academy of Science has already uh, put out a similar call in the past uh, so the academies are very much aligned with the need for this, but certainly uh, in terms of the the way to change hearts and minds, um, so the social sciences are critical. So 
when I helped set up the very first Bushfire Cooperative Research Centre, the important thing we did there was include social science in what we were doing because we could do all the technology and science um, uh, investigations, but unless we had social scientists working with us to make it into um, processes, procedures, um, messaging and so forth that would actually resonate with the people who needed to use those things, hear those things, y you're, you're in a vacuum. So working together between social sciences and technological and then sciences and engineering is a really critical combination. I think it is. And I'll hand back to Giles uh, again. But I, I also think about power and I mean political power. I mean, lots of business has power because they drive the economy or contribute to it. And, you know, taxes and things are important. And so a business lobby group is, is quite important. Uh, unions have a separate group of power. Political parties have powers. Uh, you know, farm, it often seems to me that scientists are generally uh, amongst the most knowledgeable sections uh, definition or sectors of the Australian population don't seem to absolutely be in a position to have much power they can only the force of ideas and waiting for people to rec understand that force yeah no you're right <laughs> I, I can't I couldn't put it better <laughs> I wonder when you have taken these ideas to power and political power, what's, there been, what's been their response? Um, it, there's always this, um, this tension between well-intentioned um, people in power and other pulls on them that make them more risk averse as they see it. I think it's more risky, but, but as they see it. And so they temper either their stance or their actions. I think that's changing. Um, not least because again, you know, to your point about regulation, um, when you've got climate governance reporting that's mandated certainly across larger companies across most of the world and soon will be in Australia, um, that means that they're having to actually not push the problem to the back of the, the priority pile. They're having to bring it forward and they're having to address it and they're having to actually do something. So it gives them more strength and more um, support to do what they know they have to do. So, so what you're saying then is actually it might actually come from industry, um, which would be which would be very interesting. I mean, in a way, we've seen this in Western Australia, which was one of the laggards, I think it's fair to say, over the last couple of decades, and now it's become quite far-sighted, whether it can actually implement what it's. Um, what it proposes to do is another thing, but they've suddenly just been told basically by industry, we have to be zero emissions grid we have to have green metals we have to have sort of green industry otherwise people are not going to buy our products so that has actually sort of almost turned the whole political discussion and the policy um, um, initiatives in, on, on its head so I guess we have to hope for something like that in the rest of Australia because otherwise it just seems politicians are just too frightened of something. Yeah it's um, you know industry has uh, been pushing a lot faster than government in the past for the last 10 years, certainly of previous governments. Um, industry was the leader and saying, well, we can't wait for regulation to catch up with us. We've got to make these changes because 
Um, the world's changing around us, our markets are changing, our customers want different things from us and we've got to change to meet those times or we won't be in business any longer. Um, I think that's accelerating even further. And so, you know, whether to, to go back to the point I made earlier, if Saudi Arabia sees the writing on the wall about the future of their oil industry and is working in to go into renewables, then clearly anyone can do it in terms of understanding the real risks that face them as a business. And most businesses are really getting on the front foot about this. Yeah, well, let's hope the Saudis and the UAE are, are deadly serious about this. Um, and, 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 and very Well, they're putting a lot of investment in, that's for sure, in a, places like Neom and yeah, others. They're also putting a lot of investment into football, you know, and uh, <laughs> they've got a lot of money. <laughs> True, true, but I would rather at least that they are investing and not not investing. Oh, the proof of the pudding might come in the uh, in, in the climate conference that's going to be held in the UAE in a, in a couple of months' time. Anyway, look, um, Catherine, thank you very much for joining um, the Energy Insiders podcast, um, and um, let's hope that um, that your message um, wins through. Let's hope. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> let's not squander this opportunity to future-proof Australia's economy. Hey. Okay. Look, thank you very much for joining the podcast at, at, at short notice. And look, we'll be back um, after a, a short break to discuss the news of the week. Australia's most anticipated clean energy event, All Energy Australia, returns to the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre, October 25 and 26. This event is a must for industry suppliers and experts and those involved in the renewable energy and energy storage sectors featuring over 350 suppliers and attracting more than 10,000 industry professionals. You can't miss this free event. Register now for All Energy Australia 2023, October 25 and 26, Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. You are back listening to the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson and with me is David Leach. And we have been listening to Catherine Woodfork, Dr. Catherine Woodfork from the um, from Etsy. Uh, David, it's particularly interesting that we're seeing these calls now for net zero 2035 and I think it's actually good because I've been quite sick of using 2050 uh, net zero 2050 as an excuse to do nothing and to, to wait for, for improbable technologies and I guess nuclear is the one in case. It, the, uh, the debate here is getting quite ridiculous. Well, I think it is. Uh, I haven't been talking about 2050 for a couple of years. It's all about 2030 and 2035 for me. Uh, at the same time, listening to that conversation, to Catherine talking, made me realise that we're not going to get there. And that's the other disadvantage of setting impossible targets, is that you automatically precondition your audience to stop listening uh, because they assume it can't be done or at least it's unlikely to be done and therefore they don't have to pay attention. Um, but what uh, sort of targets do we set? Because I mean, I think um, we had Stephanie Bashir, um, I think on, 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 on a while ago saying that um, we need to set a target so we can actually sort of know where we're heading to and we can work back and work out how to get there. Uh, 2050 target is pretty pointless in that regard because you'll get too many politicians arguing that um, that means doing nothing uh, for the next 10 years. Uh, not just politicians. Uh, no, uh, uh, it's again like Catherine said, the um, longer you leave it, the harder it is to do uh, in a hurry. So uh, it's not targets we need, it's policies. Uh, uh, you know, we need a... Uh, but you can look at the UK and see how too tough a policy um, encourages people to push back. I guess, you know, where in the UK the 
Boris Johnson's 2030 uh, no more um, uh, integrated combustion, uh, internal combustion engines has just been pushed back to 2035. Uh, I don't like that at all, but it just shows, but at least 2030, 2035 is the right time to be talking about it. So we need a policy in Australia, having just achieved legislation, uh, was it this year? Uh, or last year, I actually lose track, that got us to 2050. We now need to move that legislation forward. Uh, we do, one of the advantages of having a uh, rapid election cycle in politics uh, is that it does give a chance every three years for the government to, of the day uh, and the opposition to come up with new policies. Um, and, and there is a chance, you know, there's a debate to be had uh, federally as to whether it's advantageous to have stronger policy. So that's essentially what the Queensland, in my opinion, talking about politics, not electricity for a second, it's gone, uh, the Queensland Labor Party has very clearly differentiated itself uh, uh, by going strong on renewable energy, and I think it's a very good policy. The question is, will it be enough to carry them forward at the ballot box? And the same question federally is, would a stronger policy actually get you more votes uh, now, or does playing it safe and cautious, is, the, is that the better political thing? I, I know what I think. I think in the end, people vote for... for for a party and for leaders that they think is setting uh, a, a sensible future. And uh, I think the evidence is clear that a sensible future requires stronger policies than we currently have, in not just in Australia, but in every country in the world. Uh, just to finish uh, blathering on for a second more, I mean, in China, which is my kind of favourite bogeyman for having more coal generation, at the same time this year, they're going to install something close to 200 gigawatts of solar, uh, which is a lot. It is a lot, indeed. Um, yes, and um, I'm not too sure whether I have faith in sort of three-year election cycles, given that we had a perfectly decent policy um, just over a decade ago with the carbon price, the RET, the CFC and ARENA, and, um, and many parts of it, and most particularly the carbon price, were pulled down. And that's a shame, because it would have given us a fantastic platform to reach our emissions targets a lot earlier than we are going to. Um, so, Giles, I, I didn't finish, and perhaps I should ask you, the opposition, which always has to have a different policy to the government, because uh, otherwise, uh, otherwise, I don't know what, otherwise, you can't be seen to be agreeing with the government of the day. Oh, heaven forbid. <laughs> uh, so the policy, can't, and, and it's everyone accepts, even even the Liberal Party, however reluctantly, or the LNP in Queensland, that, that global warming is a truth. <laughs> uh, and therefore you can't just have coal generation forever, so you have to have something else, and so they've gone for nuclear. But what do you think about that? Um, I don't think they, I don't think they have accepted global warming as a truth. Um, maybe in the sense that they think it happens um, every couple of million years, so we shouldn't be worried about it. If you are concerned about climate science, if you do accept the um, 
the science of climate change and what all the experts are saying, then you actually know that what we need to do is to get on and cut emissions over the next 10, 15 years. That is the urgency. So any technology, any proposal that you come up with, which is just basically sort of kicking it down the path, um, kicking the can down the road and putting it 10, 15, 20 years in the future, is basically denying the need to accept the uh, word of the scientists and to protect the planet. So um, I think it's important. I just think it's, it's just yet another delaying tactics. They seem to have found something that they think they can sell, um, you know. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a political policy, right? Yeah. I mean, no, well, it is. It's not, but, but I don't believe there's any serious uh, person. I'm not aware of any person other than the nuclear industry, uh, but of any serious person uh, of credibility in the electricity industry in Australia that believes that we can install uh, a significant amount of nuclear generation by even 2035, let alone 2030. Do you, are you aware of it? I don't know of anyone, um, seriously, in the energy industry who thinks that we can even do a single one before 2040. I think it's just absurd. Let's, let's not forget that SMRs don't actually exist. There's not a single licence for one in any Western economy. Um, what, some have been rejected, uh, some have been refiled, even advanced nuclear economies like Canada and Sweden say that they won't be able to get multiple SMRs up until the mid-2030s at the earliest, and that has infrastructure, expertise, knowledge, and an ideological pursuit of them. Um, in Australia, we have nothing of those. Um, it's just simply a complete straw man, and it's just appalling. And, you know, the Liberal Party has rolled out a 17-year-old, which has just extraordinarily been given a platform on the ABC and, um, and other media, and I just find it really frustrating. I think many people do because we just know it's just yet another delay in tactics. People just spreading complete hogwash. Um, and now, now, Giles, just to make two slightly contrarian points because unfortunately I'm the sort of person that always likes to bite the hand uh, of anyone I'm near. Uh, <laughs> Please don't bite it too hard, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> uh, the first point is that the, apparently, and I didn't watch this show, the 17-year-old said, well, that's okay, everything you say, Giles, is correct, but why make it illegal in Australia? If, if uh, let's make it legal, and if someone's stupid enough to try and build one, well, then the economy will stuff it up. Uh, and I have some sympathy for that uh, viewpoint. Uh, uh, unless you can convince me why it should remain illegal. Uh, and I think that's a debate worth having. The second point I would make is that in terms of costs, there are some pretty um, <clears throat> dramatic uh, uh, renewable energy cost proposals out there. And can you guess uh, uh, near term, and can you guess which one I'm thinking about? Well, you're probably thinking about Snowy Hydro and uh, no. maybe transmission lines. Um, no, no, not not the transmission lines, certainly not, and not even Snowy Hydro, although <laughs> I could. No, I'm thinking about a variable renewable energy. Well, probably offshore wind. I'm thinking about offshore wind, which BNEF is estimating is pretty close in Australian dollar terms for the United States. So the, United, the cost to build in, offshore wind in the United States, but expressed in A dollars, is about 190 Aussie dollars per megawatt hour of delivered electricity, 190. And I would say that's without the Australian cost premium, uh, which generally exists for everything. And it's without allowing for the fact that traditionally for oil and gas, uh, Bass Strait's been a pretty difficult area to get things done because of the wind <laughs> and other things. 
so, you know, that doesn't thrill me with joy to be talking about $200 uh, a megawatt hour uh, uh, electricity. You're not going to be running your aluminium smelter on that without a pretty decent subsidy, are you? Well, no, and it remains to be seen um, how many, if any, of these um, large offshore wind projects actually do get built. Um, and we're probably looking five, six, seven years down the pathway. Um, we have seen big co cost drops in offshore wind over the last 10 years. They have slightly reversed over the last three or four years. Um, where they end up with, um, is hard to say. Um, David, just on the issue of renewables, we did hear more benchmarks this week, uh, reached more benchmarks above 70% for the first time, so uh, that was interesting, and it would have been even higher were it not for the curtailment of wind and solar, so, um, I mean, is, is that's it... The, that's the 70% instantaneous production, you know, at 11.30 uh, on Wednesday, I think it was, the NEM was getting 70%, and I still actually got to confirm that that included the demand from households, but uh, I, I imagine it does. And in any case, we know it's going to, uh, uh, that's increasing in line, funnily enough, with what AEMO said it would do. Who, who could credit it? AEMO actually knows what they're talking about every now and then. And I think we're going to get to 100% in, in, in a few years uh, uh, instantaneously. And it is worth noting, and it, I mean, it's important to note these milestones. But it's not really what we're interested in. We're interested in the 24-hour, 365-day share because that's what matters no, for carbon emissions and, and stuff like that. No, I completely disagree, actually. I think we are very interested in them because it shows um, if you were talking to people a few years ago about getting to these levels of renewables, um, particularly in Western Australia, 74% rooftop solar, um, just rooftop solar and the biggest standalone grid in the world, um, you know, these were deemed impossible beforehand. So this tells us where we can go. It also tells us a bit about what we need to do um, to actually manage a grid which is getting close to 100% renewables. Um, so that's important insight, sort of storage, demand management, um, control, well, orchestration and things like that. Now, let me, let, let me finish. Sorry. And... Um, and it's really interesting, actually, because Ayimo talks about sort of times in 2025 when there will be, they've actually kind of rephrased it now, maybe not 100% renewables, but enough um, renewables available to reach 100%. And we're not that sh actually that far off it now. So I think this week we're actually about 82 or 83% available renewables in the main grid. Now, 12% got, um, got uh, curtailed, uh, mostly because the prices were negative and some solar and wind farms. Um, under their contracts do not produce. They sort of shut down uh, when prices are negative. But it's kind of fascinating to see how far we go because if you don't get there in instantaneous and know how to manage that, you're not going to understand how to do it on a 24-hour basis as, um, as you describe. Anyway, I think it's pretty exciting. And, and, and I agree with that, Charles. And I, I, I do agree that the interesting issue, even at 70%, is when we have a, quite a bunch of coal generation still in the mix, uh, is because uh, is 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 the ramping that's going to be required from that coal generator? It's just, it is just getting harder and harder every day. Notwithstanding all the money that uh, the big gentailers are spending on coal generation to keep it running, they're not spending any money on renewables, but they're spending uh, you know uh, 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 two, three, four, five hundred million dollars each to keep their coal generators going for a few more years. Uh, yeah. and, and, and to make them more flexible. Yeah, that's right. Hello, just to finish on one other thing, we did mention Western Australia in our uh, discussions um, 
on Catherine Woodthorpe um, and just the change there. And, and, and last week we had uh, Jai Thomas from um, the Coordinator of Energy in Western Australia in a really interesting conversation about how that state has kind of turned quite quickly. And it's interesting to know that actually sort of during that conversation or after that conversation with Catherine Woodthorpe, uh, Macquarie announced uh, 2.4 gigawatts um, of wind project in Western Australia's southwest grid. Now, look, I know people make promises about multi-gigawatts of um, wind and solar here, there and everywhere, but it's really interesting that this is actually sort of, this is the first one that is anywhere near that scale in that grid. And if you think about that grid, it has maximum demand at the moment of four gigawatts. Here's someone coming along and say, we'd like to put 2.4 gigawatts in there, which is kind of what the government has actually been saying for the last few months in their new demand forecasts. And it's just fascinating to me just to see the way that industry is kind of driving this. The people who want wind and solar to sort of um, decarbonise their um, industry and refineries, and then the people coming in willing to provide it, um, all that needs to be done now is it to be managed and new transmission lines to be built, what have you. But I just think it's... Um, I, I actually find that really interesting, really exciting, and um, uh, and hopefully we can see something of that scale happening in the NEM as well. Indeed. There Indeed. you go. There you go. Well, I think we've taken up most people's time. So, look, um, thanks again, David. Uh, thanks to Catherine Woodthorpe from ATSI for talking to us about their net zero 2035 target or their urging for Australia to adopt one. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pinon. Thanks to all our listeners. Do send us some feedback and comments and questions if you have them. Uh, do check out our other podcasts, uh, Solar Insiders and the Driven Podcast, and some fantastic series on the Switched On Electrification um, Podcasts as well um some really good stuff there on um, farmers going all electric in regional um australia and and some other really good um, articles and podcasts um that's it for now we'll be back again next week bye energy insiders was brought to you by evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.